0: This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. You've heard of Facebook, right? Huge site, over a billion people visit it every day. But what's it really like working there? I talked with Hannah Fletcher to find out.
1: I've been here for four years and worked with so many different people. And I think the most sort of surprising thing Just because people don't really have a perception of who's on the other side is just how wonderful the people are. And this design team has grown a lot, but just continues to really, I think the designers on the team continue to nurture each other, and we've really grown together. And even though we've grown quickly, we've really stayed connected and are really in each other's corners. And I think that that is like a pretty special thing.
0: Learn more at Facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at provisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Base CRM is looking for a product designer. The New York Times is looking for product designers across several departments, customer relationship, customer acquisition, customer onboarding, and more. Facebook is looking for UX researchers for their growth and ad departments and we also have job listings from indeed.com so go ahead and head over to the revision path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings don't forget to sign up for our weekly job alerts and when there are new positions added to the job board you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply and if you're looking for more jobs then become a member of our slack community and join the jobs channel see you there You're listening to The Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to The Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. MailChimp is a company with 500 employees here in Atlanta, and their core values are humility, creativity, and independence. They've bootstrapped their business from day one, 15 years ago. Join more than 10 million businesses around the world who use MailChimp for marketing automation and email newsletters. Sign up for a free account today at MailChimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it. That's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it super easy for you to find the domain name that you're looking for and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code REVISIONPATH and you'll save 10% off your purchase. I've got two announcements this week. So first up, we're having our AMA chat for June with special guest Christy Tillman. That's gonna take place this week on June 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern in our Slack community. You might remember Christy from episode 70. Uh, She's the design director at Society of Grownups, and she's the founder of Tomorrow Looks Bright, which is a really great weekly newsletter that spotlights creative works from black women. We'll have an opportunity to ask Christy any questions about her work during our AMA chat. And again, that's going to take place this week on June 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern in our Slack community. If you're not a part of our Slack community, then make sure you sign up for an invite at revisionpath.com forward slash Slack. Second announcement We now have a store. That's right. Our new store is powered by Spreadshirt, and you can buy Revision Path branded t shirts, men's and women's, short sleeve and long sleeve, mugs, and buttons. Just go to revisionpath.com forward slash store and start shopping. I'm really, really excited about this. I've always wanted a way for y'all to have merch for the show for a good while and so this is a really big thing as you know we've always tried to do t-shirts in some kind of way whether it was through teespring or through some other company but now you can order them direct to print from Spreadshirt. Um, i'm really really excited about that all proceeds are going to go directly of course into keeping the show going and to paying our writers so make sure you grab something today speaking of fundraising here's our patreon fundraising campaign update so we're still holding Strong at 35 patrons for a new total of $261 a month. Again, a huge thanks for everyone that supports the show. I really, really appreciate it. Cannot stress that enough. We're just a few episodes away from our 150th episode of Revision Path. It's going to take place at the end of July. I can't believe we're already at 150 episodes. I just updated the goals and perks over on our Patreon page, too. So if you enjoy the show... If you enjoy the guests, if you've gotten any value from listening to the show, please consider becoming a patron. Please, please do. You'll get access to some really good perks like early access to future episodes. You'll get some free Revision Path goodies like stickers and notebooks. Um, Head over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels start at just $1 a month. It's a really great and affordable way to support the show on a regular basis. Now let's get on to this week's interview. I'm talking with educator, designer, and author, Andrea Pippins. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do.
1: Okay, so my name is Andrea Pippins, and I am a lot of things for the sake of our our conversation. My background is in graphic design. I do design education. I'm also an author artist illustrator so i I wear a lot of hats
0: i'm trying to think where to start i guess we'll start with the book we'll start with uh the current book that you have on now which is i love my hair which is really sort of taken off by storm talk to me about where the inspiration for that book come from like what was your process
1: sure so (laughs) it's funny because i feel like a lot of people think that it was like this grand idea from me but um actually you know it was I'll give you the the whole backstory. So I was invited to an event in New York last spring, almost a year ago. And I met a woman who was actually hosting this event. And she's an art director at Random House. And she was just randomly asking us, as we were drawing, sitting around a, a table, does anyone have any ideas for a children's book? And at that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so awesome but I, I couldn't really think of anything to share in that moment and I you know just kind of put that in my my mental rolodex and about a few months later I think it was like two months later I sent her an email with some ideas three of them being coloring books and I didn't really have like a subject matter or anything in mind but I just I knew I wanted to do a coloring book because I felt my illustration style really lent itself to that. So she responded saying, "Oh my gosh, these are great, but you know, don't get too excited. I'm going to share these with the editor and see what what she says." And then I get an email back from the editor saying, you know, "Would you be interested in doing a coloring book about hair because your your work really kind of speaks to that theme?" And I was like, "Oh my gosh, that totally makes sense." You know, so it didn't really come from me. It was the editor's idea to, you know, think about hair as this this theme for this coloring book. So the next thing I know, about two weeks later, I was in New York brainstorming with the editor and the art director, and then I had a a book deal. Wow. It sounds like it all happened really quickly. It did happen quickly. It was within less than a month. (laughs) Less than a month, and the adult coloring book craze was booming last Mm -hmm. year. It kind of started in two thousand. And then 2015, it just blew up and we wanted to hop on the bandwagon quickly before that bubble burst. So we were trying to get this out, you know, quickly. So I literally had 60 days. So July and August to draw 84 pages in the book. So I was literally drawing every day for 60 days and I'm trying to think. So I delivered it in August and it was printed in September so we had the physical book in October, and then it was released in November. So we were trying to get it out before the holiday 100%. season.
0: Wow. I mean, I guess when I think about when people talk about the process with books and how long it can take them to to put things together, I mean, 60 days doesn't sound like really any time at all. No. How did you pace yourself during that time?
1: You know what? I really, when I look back on it, I'm like, I don't know how I did it because it's something I had never done before. But I think it was really the grace of God just like pulling me along the process. Because when you think about it, you know, drawing hair and making hair colorable, my new word, because colorable is, you know, not really a word, (laughs) but making content that people really would want to draw and making it intricate and interesting and diverse. Because, you know, I didn't want it to just be pages and pages of hairstyles. I didn't didn't feel that would be interesting enough. So when I accepted the task, I was like, oh, this will be fun and really great. But when I sat down to draw, I was like, oh, my gosh, how am I going to – what am I going to draw? You know, after you get past certain hairstyles and accessories, I think I was like maybe 20 spreads in. I'm like, okay, this is cool, but what else can I draw? So it really did take some time to really you know think about what was I going to create that would make sense, be interesting, and, of course, colorable. But I, you know, I did it. I uh, I did some research. I went to the library and I sketched. And the great thing is that they really trusted me. They trusted my expertise. They trusted my eye. So there wasn't a lot of editing. And I, I think time played a good role in that because we didn't have a lot of time for me to go back to the drawing board. So they they really just kind of went with whatever I presented, which was, you know, really great. So there wasn't a lot of editing. Um, I just had fun and just kind of, you know, trusted my gut throughout the process. And
0: what's been the reception so far? Now that the book is out and you've been you've been touring, you've been doing events. Mm-hmm. How are people uh, responding to it?
1: The response has been great. I, I really didn't know what to expect when I took on this project. I, I just knew that I had given it my all. I put a lot of love into it, and with that, I was just once I was done, I was like. You know, putting this out into the world, whatever happens, I just know I did my best. But the response has been phenomenal. You know, going to these different events and speaking engagements and book signings, people have been really, you know, sharing different stories about giving this book to a daughter or having coloring book parties and just having fun with it. Like, that is the main thing with the book is just, you know, having fun and embracing who you are and people have been sharing that with me. So that has been great. I feel like the job that I wanted to get done has been done based on those responses. And
0: now you're working on a second book, right?
1: Well, <laughs> I finished <laughs> it, um, almost about three weeks ago. I just oh, actually just delivered some like final changes in, in um, files yesterday, which is why I had to like, Send that email out a little bit before we talked. Yeah. So I, I just finished the second book and it's a little different from I love my hair. It's an activity book called becoming me. And it's all about embracing creativity and using different exercises, activities and props to encourage and inspire creativity. So it's about 176 pages which is crazy wow. because I, I did that book in less time than I love my hair. So more pages, but less time. <laughs> <laughs> like still recovering from, you know, just getting all of that done, and all while still promoting I Love My Hair. So that's going to be out in October.
0: Nice. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. What have doing both of these books sort of taught you in terms of of the the output that you can do?
1: It's taught me that I can definitely, like, when I'm focused, I can definitely get things done. And I tend, with, with my creative endeavors, I tend to procrastinate a little bit because, you know, I, I like to let the ideas flow. And in these situations, I didn't have that time to to just kind of sit and ponder and, you know, look for tons of inspiration. So it's really taught me that I can, you know, when when I need to, I can really buckle down, kind of like in grad school, you just get it done, you know, get it done. But it also taught me that I don't really like to work that way. You know, I'm the kind of person that likes to enjoy life day by day and, you know, go out for a walk and do some meditation and yoga. And I like to incorporate that into my life on a daily basis as much as possible. And when I can't do that, it really is, it takes a toll on me. So I realized that I don't like to have All those things kind of crammed into a short amount of time. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, a way to to balance that a little bit more.
0: What do you sort of do for self-care? You mentioned like walking, meditation. What other things do you do?
1: Well, it's funny because drawing for me is a form of meditation. It's like really therapeutic. And when I was working on I Love My Hair, it was perfect because, you know, I, I was drawing all day and it felt really great. Even though there were times where I felt, you know, really stressed because it, it was the deadline was approaching. But you know, when it's work, it's just it's a little different sometimes. So I try to make time for, you know, drawing just for me, just for the sake of, you know, getting some creative energy out. I love, like I said, walking, just sitting down and burning a candle and journaling. Also spending time with friends when I can. Gosh. Um <laughs> As friends and family, actually, what else do I do? I love to just be, you know, just sit and, and just be and sit in the sunshine or sit by the water. There's, you know, I live in Baltimore, very close to the water, and I like to take a walk. And there's this little section on a pier that I just like to sit down and look out into the water and just, again, just just be in that space.
0: Nice. That's nice. I mean, I'm in Atlanta. I mean, we don't have water here, really, unless I go (laughs) to Lake Ladier. No, that's good. That's good that you kind of have those rituals that are part of your everyday work. Yeah. So it doesn't feel like eventually you get too burned out or too stressed out. It just sounds like during the book process, that was such a lot to put into such a short amount of time. Yeah,
1: yeah. And one more thing I I would like to add to the whole (coughs) self-care thing is giving myself permission to say no. That is super important because in these situations, there are a lot of opportunities that come to me and I'm always so grateful. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, this organization or this company or these folks are seeing my work and seeing all these things that I'm doing and it's really exciting. But at the same time, I have to realize that I'm only one person and I can't be everywhere and do everything at the same time. So I just have to really prioritize and make sure that I'm, you know, thinking about my health and thinking about, you know, the fact that I need sleep and time to myself and, you know, a social life. So, you know, taking care of that and nurturing that and being able to say no when I feel like it's getting to be too much.
0: Yeah, I spoke to Denise Jacobs recently and she kind of also touched on that same thing about, you know, it's great that you have these opportunities because, as, as I think she mentioned, I don't know if she mentioned this on the interview or after we did it, but she said that kind of as being a black woman in this space, these opportunities don't come that often in general. Mm-hmm. So you kind of feel like you have to take everything because you're already out there in sort of a public way. But also there is just the representation of being a black woman in this space. Right. So, so that's that's really good that you, you sort of give yourself permission to say no sometimes because that, in turn, kind of, I guess, affects the quality of your work,
1: oh, yeah, definitely. It's so funny, you say that, and I'm happy to hear that she, you know, said that and kind of feels the same way because I feel like right now, the the black female creative is trending. And yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's totally trending. And on the good side, it's great because there are these opportunities and recognition that is coming. but, on the other side, there are you know a few of us who are constantly being approached, and you you know you want to say yes, but then because you're constantly being approached, you just you can't you can't do it all. It feels completely overwhelming. But folks, they don't realize that you know you're getting you know twenty emails a day being asked the same thing, and you know a lot of us are doing all of this on our own. You know, like I'm wearing all the hats of being the administrator, being the the, the agent. The negotiator the accountant so it it can be a lot a lot of times people don't
0: realize that have you thought about I guess outsourcing some of that eventually so you can I mean not to say that you would want to sort of overburden yourself with work but I know what that's like because I I mean you are an entrepreneur as well so you know it's kind of one of those things where if you're doing so much of these things it sort of takes time away from the one thing that you got in business to do in the first place which is to create
1: yes yes I think about it all the time, and I really, I do want to bring in an intern. I had an intern before. There are just some things that I feel like I need to do, and maybe that's just me being a control freak and not being able to delegate, and it's funny because I always think about, oh, I need an intern when I'm in the the midst of all this stuff happening, and it Mm -hmm. feels like a lot to sit and think about, oh, okay, well, now that I need an intern or I need help or something, I need to write a job description and then do some interviews. So that whole process just makes me feel like, you know, let me just do it myself right now. Yeah. But hopefully in the near future when things slow down, I'll be able to, you know, sit down and really think about bringing on some help. So, you know, when those busier times come, it's already in place.
0: I hope so too. Because I mean, with with doing two books and then you're also still you know, working with clients and things. That's a lot to take on by yourself. (laughs) It is. Not saying you can't do it, but it just helps so much to get like an intern or someone that can handle all the minutia, all the little stuff. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Let's go back. I really want to know, how did you first get interested in design?
1: So (laughs) my story, well, one of the ways I got interested in design was uh, seeing the movie Boomerang. Oh, okay. I think I was, I, I can't remember if I was like 12 or 13 at the time. I don't remember, but I remember seeing Halle Berry. Well, I mean, first of all, the movie is just phenomenal. And I like, I watched that movie so much because it just broke boundaries on so many levels. And there's like all these little social cues in there that I think Eddie Murphy and his his team were really smart to incorporate I think about Halle Berry and her role in that movie, like she was a designer and I didn't have that language at the time, but she was, you know, responsible for the visual look for these ad campaigns. And she was an artist. Like she was painting in that, you know, that one scene where Eddie Murphy gets that phone call from Robin Gibbons. So she was, you know, painting. And I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I, I love that. And she was also teaching that little, like, doing that volunteer work on the side, working with students, teaching them art. So, you know, I was preteen, teenager at the time. It was like a little nugget that was kind of planted in my brain. But that was the first time that I really saw a woman of color doing something that I thought that I could do or I would be interested in doing. And then shortly after, around the same time, I, I saw, like, a Saturday, like, middle of Saturday morning cartoon thing. It was like a a vignette or something. I I can't remember, but it was this woman who was a commercial director or commercial artist. She was talking about what she does. She was basically a designer at a magazine. And I guess these were little, little clips that they showed in the middle of the Saturday morning cartoons that showed different jobs that you could pursue and she had this studio with all these like paints and a drawing board and she was doing these really cool things for a magazine. I was like, oh my gosh, I wanna I wanna do that. So that was way before high school, but it wasn't until my senior year that I really started to think about, okay, well, you know, I love being creative, I'm an artist, how can I, you know, synthesize those things and those interests into a job where I could, you know, get paid or you know, make a living. So that's when I started to learn about, you know, being a commercial artist or a graphic artist, which is what it was called at the time. Mm -hmm. And then I just started looking for schools that had those kind of programs. And I saw the, um, the University of Akron, I saw the Pratt Institute and the Tyler School of Art at Temple University, some strong design programs. And those are the schools that I applied to. And so
0: you went to Temple University for art school. Talk to me, kind of what was the process like there? How did you enjoy it? Did you feel like it really kind of prepared you as a designer working in the industry? Yes,
1: absolutely. But I will say that it took me three tries to get into the art school, into the art program there, and it was just a testament to how, like, Determined I was to get into that school because I got accepted to the University of Akron, but I wasn't excited about going to Ohio. I got accepted to Pratt, but it was too expensive. Like they offered some scholarship money, but it was way too expensive. And I did not get accepted to Tyler, and they turned me down twice. And they told me that my portfolio was just not up to par, and it wasn't. You know, I didn't have a lot of experience I didn't go to like art camp or I didn't have any like serious art classes when I was in high school so it was really it was a lame portfolio but my test scores were really good and I you know did really well in all the I guess intro introductory uh, programs so I got accepted into the core curriculum but not into the art school so the first year at Temple I took all my core courses that I could in those two semesters. I took an art class. I took a, um, a two-dimensional class that like helped build my portfolio. And then I reapplied again and finally got into to the art school. When I started doing like the foundation courses in sophomore year, it was, it was hard for me because I didn't have any background. But I, I learned a lot and I worked really, really hard And then when I finally got into, so, you know, it was my sophomore year, but technically my first year in the art program. So when I got into my second year of the art program, that's when we started taking design courses to see if we had what it took to, you know, pursue design. And I struggled. I struggled so much because I just, I didn't get it, but I was really excited about it. I was truly enthusiastic about, you know, what I could do. With this. And I think that the professors saw that. So they really encouraged me and I was, you know, able to go forward in the program. So, you know, I learned a lot and that community, it was, you know, tight knit and it was small and mm-hmm. it really like nurtured me. And I felt like I, I was, you know, developing a confidence in myself as a designer artist. I applied to internships and I worked design internships every summer While I was in college, I was, you know, really, really determined. And when I graduated, I graduated with the top portfolio, which I did not expect by any means considering where I started, like leaps and bounds from what I was doing, you know, my freshman year.
0: Well, I mean, that's a testament not just to your hard work, but also to just your innate, like God-given talent as a designer. Mm
1: -hmm. Definitely, because... But I look back and I was like, oh, my gosh, it was there was so many times where I wasn't sure that I could do it. I even had a professor ask me if I really thought that I could you know, do this. Mm-hmm. She wasn't really sure I had what it took to be a designer. But I was, again, just really, really determined. So
0: push forward. You talked about that that sense of community. Do you feel like you got that support? From, I guess, fellow students or from the faculty while you were going through art
1: school? Definitely. Definitely the faculty. You know, they were tough. They were really tough. You know, it's funny when I think about the educators then versus now, like the stuff they used to do then, we can't really do now as educators. You know, you kind of get in trouble these days. What kind of stuff? Like, it was a drawing class, charcoal drawing. And I remember... We would hang, like, we were required to hang our homework up around the classroom. So, Mm -hmm. by the time our professor got in there, everything had to be up. And we would stand in the middle, we like huddled in the middle, all the students, waiting for her to critique. And she would go around and just tear down the ones that she thought were weak or she didn't think she had the time to even critique because clearly we didn't have the time to put in the effort and work that she thought would be appropriate. So, you know, you might have spent 10 minutes, an hour working on something, but if she didn't think that it looked like you put enough time, she tore it down. So that was hard to see, but I felt like, well, I didn't take it personally and I didn't think that it was a big deal, but I feel like if as an educator now with all of the way things have changed in terms of, you know, millennials and expectations from schools and, and teachers, I don't think that would fly today at all. I, I was about to
0: ask, like, how do you think that has impacted you as a design educator? Because now you are, you're the teacher now. I mean, you've taught at Bowie State, American University, mm-hmm. you taught for a long time at Stevenson University. Most recently now you're at MICA. Mm-hmm. How has that helped you as, a, as an educator?
1: You know, I try to be more empathetic because I get it. But at the same time, I'm demanding I'm demanding, but with a purpose. Like, I don't... What my demands are is for... It's like to encourage a student to work hard and prepare them for, you know, future employment opportunities. So I never ask for anything that I think is unreasonable in terms of, you know, what I think that they can do. But at the same time, I understand the kind of pressure that they're under. So I, I try to never do anything just for the sake of doing it. You know, I, I know that sometimes professors try to... Build character, and you know, that's fine too, but that's just not my way of teaching. I think I really want the students to do their best, and when I see they have a lot of potential, I try to to push them as much as possible.
0: Now, one thing that I don't think is really talked about a lot in design education, both from a student standpoint and from a a faculty standpoint, is kind of the diversity of both of those things. I mean, I presented a a presentation at South by Southwest last year. Mm Titled "Where Are the Black Designers," and in that I had a slide that sort of looked at the percentages. I think it was based on 2014 or 2015 data, but percentages of African American students at like some of the top design schools: SVA, Pratt, MICA, etc. And they're all in like single percentages. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine on the faculty side, it's probably kind of right around the same. I've had a few design educators on the show: Silas Monroe, D'Angela Duff. Tamika D. Williams, and they kind of have all sort of spoken about just there needs to be this bigger need for for people of color in the design education space. But sort of talk to me, what has your experience been like as an educator? I mean, because you've been at so many different schools. I mean, going from, you know, a school like Bowie State to working at MICA, mm-hmm. like what have those different experiences taught you? Well,
1: first I'll say I I totally agree that there needs to be, you know, more People of color in these faculty positions, especially, I mean, you know, in general, but especially in our institutions. But, you know, I don't think that we can ask of that if we don't have people of color pursuing those fields. You can't recruit what's not there, you know? So I think the bigger question is, you know, how do we encourage young people of color to pursue these roles? And we need to look at education and, you know, a lot of these. Students are coming from, you know, public schools or maybe even private schools that just don't have a focus or or trying to encourage students to, you know, be artists, be designers, be a photographer. And when they don't see that that's an opportunity, they, they don't go into those roles or pursue those those uh, opportunities. So I think that's a bigger question. I'm trying to bring it back around to your specific question, though. Can you say it again?
0: Oh, no, <laughs> I, I, no, no, that's fine. I was asking, like, how has your experience been working as a design educator, like, at each of these different schools?
1: Oh yeah, it definitely varied because you know, very different programs, very different student populations. I've always felt, I guess, welcomed in every scenario, but you know, Louis State is HBCU, so pretty mm-hmm. much everyone there is a person of color but there are other institutions where I might have been the only person of color. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much used to that, you know, from working in corporate, being in certain like conferences and situations I'm, I'm pretty much used to it. It hasn't been a problem. I guess for me, I don't always want to be the, the go-to person for diversity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that I am very interested in and I won't say passionate about because I, I think I do think that there is a problem where we don't have enough, you know, again, people of color in faculty positions, in design firms, in, you know, corporate America how, or in house studios. But I feel like lately diversity is a word, it's like a band aid for bigger issues. And I don't think it's as simple as, oh, you know, let's hire another person of color or bring in a group of people. So that we can have more diversity in in these situations, I think the, there has to be bigger questions to be asked about, you know, what are the issues with race, and you know, why why don't I already think about hiring somebody who is outside of of my circle? I think that that that's the beginning place for fixing this issue of you know the lack of diversity it's not as simple as just bringing in a person of color into, you know, there might be this one person of color in a sea of non-people of color, but they may not feel supported or understood or, you know, not feeling like they can, you know, speak their mind because they are that only person of color. So what is, what's the support system for that person who's trying to navigate that world? So I think there there are a lot of other questions that need to be asked. I'm really glad that
0: you mentioned that. I mean, inclusivity is really something that, is I don't want to say it's the flip side of diversity, but when you sort of said diversity as a bandaid for bigger issues, that, that light bulb went off in my head because there are so many like groups and organizations that I've worked with and encountered where that's exactly what diversity ends up trying to be for them. Mm-hmm. So they want to bring in more people of color and more women and, you know, LGBT, et cetera. But then they're not taking a critical look at their own environment to see, What in their environment might be keeping those people away in the first place? Right, exactly. For one, and I'm not going to name the company, (laughs) but for one company in particular, it was really rotten internal communication. Mm. Like the teams did not speak to each other. There was not enough uh, conversation between managers and subordinates. And so what sort of ended up happening was, yeah, they brought in more people of color. But then in six months, those people were right out the door. Because once they got in, they didn't feel like they were sort of part of this, this group or this clique or, or whatever. They didn't feel like they were being supported either personally or professionally.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: As an educator, what have your students taught you?
1: Oh, my gosh. So much. My students inspire me all the time. Every time I leave the classroom, I'm like, oh, I want to go home and, and create. Most part, I would say students... Teach me to, like, experiment. Like I, I'm always encouraging them to experiment, but when I see the way that they are thinking and you know playing with tools and asking certain questions, they really push me to to do more. Especially, you know, I'll say most recently because I've you know been teaching at Micah. Most recently, you know, just the way they like me challenge an idea or, you know, have a discussion about something that they saw just makes me think of things in a different way. So I feel like they just offer a different perspective and I love that. I love when students, you know, ask me questions or or challenge me because, you know, I don't know everything. I come to the classroom with my own experiences. I come there, you know, I prepare my lecture and I have a perspective that I want to share, but when they, they challenge that or just have a different thought, it just it broadens the conversation. So
0: I love that. Looking back at I mean the I guess the work that you've done to where you are sort of right now currently as a as an artist, do you feel like this is where you wanted to be at this stage in your life?
1: I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like when I think back to I don't know, when I was a teenager or in my twenties, I don't think I had a clue of where I was going to be. I don't know. I think I go with the flow. Of course, I try to take action or execute things. But when opportunities come, especially if they're like great opportunities and they challenge me or I'm really curious about it, I kind of just take advantage of them and they lead me in these really cool directions. So I don't know where I thought I would be now, but I would say where I am now is really awesome and probably more than I could have ever imagined if you told me I don't know three years ago that I'd have I'd be an author of two books at this point I I'm like oh really that's amazing <laughs> but three years ago that wasn't something that I you know had really had planned so it's just remarkable how things have kind of happened for me
0: what keeps you motivated and inspired like what's the thing or or things or people etc that kind of give you purpose
1: I would say young women for sure young women of color when I you know have done these these book signings and speaking engagements and getting to meet People in person, like people who might have followed the blog for years or people who are fans of I Love My Hair and meeting folks in person and hearing their story or hearing about their interest in art and design, or you know, how Fly might have inspired them to pursue that career or just have an interest, more in- interest in art like that inspires me. I love hearing women's stories. I love hearing about you know young women and their aspirations because I'm really interested in encouraging them and empowering to them to you know move forward and owning their stories. So things like that really inspire me every day. You know I've, I'm trying to travel more, so I'm really interested in seeing how I can do more of that on a global level versus you know just my my local communities. You know which is great too, but I, I definitely want to see how I can take that abroad
0: who are some designers out there now that you kind of admire and look up to
1: you know I really love the work of Paula Cher okay you know she does great design but I'm really really captivated by her her art her paintings have you seen her like matte paintings oh yeah so beautiful she recently did an installation at Tyler so she also went she graduated from Tyler as well and she did a project with some students where they just covered an entire gallery space with one of her her paintings and i don't know if they also i guess they came together and like incorporated their own painting or information into this painting so i don't know if it was a collaborative effort in that way but it was just so amazing and i would love to do an installation piece like that like that's all my my dream vision board as a project to do so I love that she's able to balance like you know doing this kind of corporate branding which is amazing but then also having this kind of artistic side which is something I'm I'm still trying to figure out how to balance
0: Craig Brim who we've had on the show before and it's, it's sort of referencing what you just said he described you because he was one of the people that was like oh you really need to have Andrea Pippins on the show among other guests I should mention. He described you to me as like the Tracy Reese of graphic design oh, wow. <laughs> because you do like this really, which I, I agree with, like this very intricate design work. But then sort of what you said with with Paula is you're you're kind of also navigating how do you still kind of do your art, but then also on a commercial scale as well, which I guess is what you're doing with the books, too.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely. Shout out to Craig.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I heard recently some of your work is going to be in the uh, new National Museum of African-American History and Culture.
1: Yes. I did some illustrations for work. Well, the way that it works is I produce a series of illustrations that they will use on product. So it'll be a museum store, which is really exciting because, you know, the museum in itself is just an amazing achievement within the Smithsonian Institution and, and for our country, so I'm really excited to be a part of that in some way, even if it is, you know, just in, in the museum store.
0: Is that kind of a full circle moment for you?
1: Hmm, wow, I didn't even think about it in that way. I would say, I guess, yes.
0: Because you interned there. like I did. Yeah.
1: Wow, I didn't even think about that. You know, things have been going so fast. <laughs> and I remember, because I I uh, turned in those illustrations. I went, I was in Stockholm for... A month in January, and I literally turned in those illustrations. Oh my gosh! Now I'm like blending times. I can't remember if I turned it in before or just after. But it was just like all these things happening really quickly, and I haven't had the time to really sit and digest and kind of think about these amazing opportunities, which I think is a shame because you know you really have to like think about and be grateful for all these things that are coming. So I haven't even had a time to process that, like. Yeah, I forgot that I interned at the Smithsonian <laughs> three summers in a row and then having my work in this amazing new institution. thats Yeah, that's awesome.
0: Congratulations to you. Thank you. you. <laughs> As I'm doing my research, and of course because, and I mentioned this before we recorded, I mean, I've been such a fan of your work and have followed you for, for such a long time. The one thread that I see that kind of connects your work from I don't know, I guess from like, I don't want to say your early design days, but that kind of feels like the best way to put it. But from that to now, I mean, to being a design educator and with your books, is your your popular award-winning blog, Fly. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about that. Man,
1: you know, when I started Fly 10 years ago, well, it'll be 10 years in June, I just wanted a creative outlet. I had seen some blogs pop up, you know, that was the early kind of boom of the blogosphere and I'd seen mm-hmm. some other design blogs and like art blogs, style blogs. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that's something that I can do. And it's something I felt like I needed to do because I didn't see any of, of, color or from, you know, people of color or representing things that I was interested in. But when I started, you know, that those first few months, I literally posted maybe like once a month. And then I remember the fall of 2006, I was like, okay, I'm going to post a little bit more. But that really, like you said, really is the thread of how all these things that kind of happened for me have happened. People always ask me, you know, do you feel like your blog is successful? And I always feel like it's coming from a place of monetary success. Like I've not been able to make fly my business. You know, I've had ads on there. I've done collaborations with major brands, but it wasn't something that I could necessarily live off on. And there was a point when I was trying to do that. But in terms of opening the doors for me and exposure, Fly has been phenomenal. And I, I know that I would not have been able to do a lot of the things that I've done because of that platform. Like That platform has created a tribe of people who support me on so many levels. Like Mm I am getting emotional thinking about it because sharing my work on that blog or sharing my opinion or, you know, having that following for so many years has really allowed me to do so many things. And, you know, of course I couldn't live off of the blog directly, but that blog has given me the opportunity to go to the white house and, you know, share I Love My Hair, which has created this following. So indirectly, I have been able to, you know, make a living off of it. I'm able to live and work as an illustrator full time and do so many things. So, yeah, it's been a a phenomenal thread.
0: Yeah, I know those early days of blogging. And I think it's even that way now where people only look at blogging success as how much money is it getting me? Like, am I getting, you know, ad money or or sponsorship money. And I mean even with with what I do with the podcast, people will wonder if it's successful because I'm getting, you know, big sponsors or something like that. Yeah. And while that's good to sort of keep things going, the real, you know, success of it, and I think that's something that everyone has to determine for themselves is kind of what are the other opportunities that you're getting from it. And like you said, you've been able to to build this tribe, which is is priceless, of people that know your work, that have seen your journey, and that support you with what you do. You can't put a dollar amount on that.
1: It's so true. And kind of speaking on the idea of success, like I've been lately, like really adamant on determining and defining for me what success means. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, we all want a level of financial stability and, you know, being able to sustain a lifestyle with a certain amount of income. But like, like you said, like all of these opportunities, all of these amazing people who support my work, like it's priceless. And to me, that is like a very amazing high level form of success.
0: Who are some of the people that have helped mentor you throughout the years like I've helped you along the way
1: so many people Uh, (laughs) my goodness you know when I think about like Tim Smith he was someone who worked at the Smithsonian and he just I can't even remember how I met him someone gave me his number and he wanted or he made time to meet with me and my mother and I believe I was a senior in high school at the time and he gave me some feedback on my portfolio. He basically told me that it was terrible, that the, the way I was presenting my work was, you know, just unacceptable. And he did it in a way that wasn't demeaning, but very like firm. And I really appreciated that. And he actually gave me, he was like my, my connection to my Smithsonian internship. And he became a mentor, someone that I could go to for help. And you know, a lot of my mentors kind of happened in different parts of my life. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like he was a mentor during the intern slash school part. And then when I got further along in my undergraduate career, professors, you know, kind of adopted me as their their daughter or, you know, as a, a mentee and gave me a lot of feedback. And still to this day, colleagues of mine, whether it was in from when I was working at TV landing like at night to, you know, colleagues at these educational institutions are always people that I can go to and ask questions. I feel like it's peppered throughout. I don't have that one person that I, I go to for everything. It really depends on what I'm looking for or asking for.
0: Now that you've kind of finished up the book and, and we're, we're going into the summer now, what are you the most excited about?
1: I'm excited about taking a break. <laughs> I'm excited about just just being for a little bit. I'm traveling to Stockholm again this summer and just being there and because it's in Europe and so close to some other European countries that I'd like to visit, just like going around and, and hanging out, just being inspired. Like I haven't had the time to just go to the library and sit for hours or just you know, sit in my room and just draw or go through magazines. I love magazines so much and I have quite a few that I just haven't had the time to go through and and read, you know, the articles or like cut out pages that I like. So I'm excited about that. I I feel like I need to be re-energized. I need to see something new. I want to like go to museums and galleries and just like hang out and enjoy life. So I'm looking forward to that this summer. What
0: is the best advice that you've been given about what you do? Like it can be from a mentor. It can be from anyone.
1: The best I would say was from my former professor, Joe Scorsoni, from uh, Tyler. When we were seniors, he taught a portfolio class. And he basically told us when we were seniors that we should show our portfolio to anyone who's willing to look. And I took that to heart. And when I graduated, I was determined to move to New York City and start my design career there. That was the time when you could call people, you would like, you know cold call or send an email and say, "Hey, you know would you be willing to look at my portfolio just like an informational interview if you're not hiring you know just take a look and and give me some feedback and mm-hmm. I did, I did a lot of that. I did that in Philly. I did that in New York. I literally showed it to anyone who was willing to just you know, take some time out of their day to, to speak with me. And it helped me build confidence in terms of interviewing, like the whole interviewing process, and being able to kind of you know, navigate different situations because I had times when people just wanted to give me five minutes and some people who wanted to talk for an hour and that led to an opportunity to work in New York. It came you know, later down the line, but I got a job out of that. So it, it really showed me that when you can connect with people, especially through similar interests like art and design, it, it really makes a difference. So that advice really, really helped me.
0: Where do you see yourself in the next five years or so?
1: Man. <laughs> 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 well, in five years, I see myself traveling a lot. I don't know where I'm gonna be. I don't know what country I'm gonna be in, but I see myself traveling a lot and setting up shop, like having a physical space where I can create and teach. You know, I took this semester off from teaching and I really miss my students a lot. They might think I'm a weirdo because I like email them to check on them and see if they're doing okay, especially Mm -hmm. the seniors who are about to graduate. I miss that interaction, so I'd like to have a physical space where I can like teach workshops and you know work with people and encourage them to you know pursue their creative interests, and also making it a space where I can create. So you know the studio away from home because I currently have my studio in my in my home. So I'm I kind of I'm looking forward to that separation, and I'm excited about that. I actually see that happening sooner than you know maybe five years from now. Also, you know, my personal life, you because you kind of get caught up in in work, and I see myself, you know, being a mom and just building a life with my partner and just enjoying life, just, you know, really kind of diving in and just having fun and exploring the world because it's, you know, way too short.
0: Oh, yeah. I totally agree with that. I just turned 35 this year. Nice. And... I don't know. It's like a weird sort of realization. I don't want to say it's a realization, but, you know, when you're so busy working on your own career and and you know this also just kind of being an entrepreneur as well, you tend to sort of lose sight of the other things that are, are most important to you. It's kind of like you compromise some things in order to move up that ladder faster in some kind of way.
1: Yeah. And I think especially for women, it's something like, you know, we're encouraged to move up this ladder and just, you know, take advantage of all these opportunities and do this and do that. But we kind of forget about, you know, these other things that we want to do or need to do. And in a certain amount of time, because we're women, you know? So I think it's, it's just a little more pressure on the ladies in terms of like, how do you be ambitious, but also, you know, nurturing a partnership or being a nurturing mother or becoming a mother so a lot of questions for us to, to be thinking about and navigating. I just want to add one more thing. So my my guy, my partner, he asked me recently a question that just really kind of made me stop and think. He was like, what are your dreams beyond your work? And I was stuck. I was stuck because I, I was thinking like, oh, you know, I dream to do this kind of project and I see myself involved in this kind of collaboration, but not really thinking about, you know, what do I want outside of that? And that really, it shook me because I I had to like, it it forced me to rethink what are my priorities. And again, going back to my list of success, like what does success mean for me? And does it only mean things related to the work that I want to do or the, the achievements that I want to achieve? So Mm -hmm. it was a really, really good question and a really important question because it really made me stop and think, okay, you know, there are countries that I want to visit and there are like little, like fun things that I want to experience in life. So it was a a great question.
0: That is a great question. I'm going to have to start asking that myself. That's a really good question. Yeah.
1: And I think as Americans, our mantra is, you know, work hard do this, achieve that, and sometimes we have to step back and see, like, how hard do we have to work? Like, you know, what, what does that really mean? Does it mean work hard to the point where you, you don't enjoy your life and you're, you know, grinding so much that you're not getting en- enough sleep and you wake up and you're 70 years old and you've missed out on all these things? And, you know, 70 is not old by any means, but you have a you know whole lifetime that you can experience things. So do you have to wait until you're 70 to, to start really living? So I think, yeah, they're really important questions to ask right now, today, because again, it goes so fast.
0: I hear that. Absolutely. Well, I think that's kind of a, a good place to, to wrap things up. But where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online?
1: So my website, which is in the midst of being uh, redeveloped as we speak, so it, it'll change The web address won't change, but the look of it will change very soon. But um, it's andreapippins.com. So A-N-D-R-E-A-P-I-P-P-I-N-S. People always leave off that S. (laughs) (laughs) So andreapippins.com. And then on Twitter, it's at andreagpippins because Andrea Pippins was already taken. So my middle initial is in there. And then on Instagram, I'm at andreapippins. So... I post there all of my little like findings, inspirational quotes, things that I'm into, and also process images of my current work. And then, of course, there's Fly, my blog. So flygirlblog.com, which I won't say too much, but that's also going through a change.
0: Okay, awesome. Well, Andrea Pippins, for me, this has been such a great interview. As I've mentioned, you know, during the interview before, you're someone who whose work I have followed for such a long time and just really kind of hearing not only your process behind the work that you've done, behind the books that you've done, but also touching on your educational work and even, you know, also delving a little bit into you personally. I mean, this has been really just such a treat for me. I hope it's a treat for the people that are listening. I hope they really get a lot out of it and follow your work and buy your books and join the tribe and everything yes. so <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show i really do appreciate it
1: thank you thank you for having me and thank you for this gift that you're putting out into the world it's definitely needed so thank you for all your hard work Thoughts of love are in your mind.
0: and that's it for this week big thanks to andrea pippins and thanks to you for listening you can find out more about andrea and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as building tools like origami, sharing what they've learned on Medium, and by giving back to the design community. Learn more about Facebook Design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Their attitude might be playful, but their business is super serious. Sign up for a free account today, MailChimp, send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, do me a huge favor, would you? Please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. I know I mention that all the time, but it only takes a minute or two, and it really, really, really helps the show. It helps bump us up in those iTunes rankings for design podcasts, which means more people get to hear the show Which means that the show gets you know, Broadcast to a larger audience Please leave us a rating We haven't had a rating in months So it would really really do me well To see some new 5 star reviews Leading up to our 150th episode So take a few minutes Leave us a rating and review on iTunes I really would appreciate it Oh and don't forget about our AMA chat On June 29th with Christy Tillman Again that's at 8pm Eastern In our Slack community And check out our new merch over at revisionpath.com forward slash store. Buy a t-shirt, send me a picture, and I will give you a shout-out online. I'll put it on Twitter, put it on Facebook. It'll be really dope. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revisionpath and pledge your support. Plus level started just $1 per month, and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.